good evening, welcome. Uh, for those who don't know me, uh, my name is Tom Smith. I'm a member of the congregation here, uh, and it's really great uh, to see you here, and uh, welcome. Now, we're coming this evening to probably one of the most famous passages in the whole Bible. And what's probably the most famous verse of all in John 3, verse 16. It's been described as the Bible in miniature. It's both a profound yet deep description of God's rescue mission. Its popularity is reflected in popular culture. From this guy, the football player, who has it inked on his face, although whether that message is helpful to his opponents as he runs full pelton for them, I don't know. From my rugby playing experience, I think it would have encouraged even more dodgy tackling against me. Or perhaps it would be this guy, with his rainbow-colored hair and John 3, verse 16 t-shirt, who wants to show both the love of Jesus and his wacky lifestyle. Or even this random golf spectator, who could easily be advertising double glazing. Or this, my very favorite John chapter 3, verse 16 house, in surely the lushest of all holiday donations, where I spent very many happy teenage years in Portrush, Northern Ireland. Now this is a long way away from the mysteries of Daniel, with his obscure pictures that need hard work and big books to understand. I know what just one of the encounter group said to me just last week that your worksheets were really necessary to capture key points and those areas to explore in more detail, to follow up. Now I think those notes are gonna be really helpful today but hopefully the focus will be on application rather than what on earth does this actually mean? Because for me, this passage, its very simplicity is its challenge. It's really clear on what God has done for us. He sent his son to die for us. Why he's done it? It's because God loves us. And it's a clear description of the consequences of belief in Jesus. It's eternal life. It's also clear on the consequences of unbelief. It means that we would stay condemned as a consequence of our sin. And knowing what belief is will help us get to grips with the true meaning of the passage and the importance of our response. But that won't help happen without God's help. So let's pray together. Dear God, we pray that you would help us this evening. You would help my words to be accurate and clear and help all of our thoughts be clear about how you would want us to live, change lives as a result. Amen. Amen. So we're going to be looking at uh, this evening's passage in four main sections. It would be great if you could follow along with me at page 888 in the Church Bibles. But let's dive in with the first heading. So salvation is the work of God alone. Can we see that in John chapter 3, verses 16 to 18? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. Now, just last week, we've already seen who Jesus is. And in the earlier chapters of John, Jesus is described as the Word of God, present with the Father at the beginning of time, coming into, world, into the world as a man, 
and in Jesus acknowledged as God's chosen one and identified as the Lamb of God. Ben last week showed us Jesus beginning his work and saw that even that outwardly righteous Nicodemus required God's salvation. These verses reveal to us just how that salvation comes about. It's all about God. He loved the world so much that he gave his son. It's not about us. It's not saying that God loved Tom so much because he's a good bloke and tries to be nice to people and can occasionally scrub up well. But God loves everyone in the world, even the very worst. And that love isn't a soppy or superficial romantic love, but a practical and costly love that sent his very being, his son, to be our salvation. And God knew that in giving his son, it was necessary for that beloved son to die a condemned sinner's death. And along with that mission of salvation, isn't it great to see that Jesus' coming wasn't to condemn the world, but instead to save the world? That's brilliant news, especially in a world that is so quick to condemn, maybe through Twitter storms or social media pylons. Jesus' coming wasn't about condemnation, but a rescue mission to already condemned and guilty humanity. As it says in this passage, whoever does not believe is condemned already. So without God's initiative, we would and would be condemned. Perhaps it's a bit like a situation I find myself in quite recently. Now, our house is built on the side of quite a steep hill, and our front garden has some grass on that slope. Uh, on the bottom of that grass is quite a murky and muddy pond. Just last month, I had my shiny new and very heavy lawnmower out. I was making great progress. The grass cutting was going well until I got to the bottom of the slope. When I put my foot out to brace for the final cut, but unfortunately, rather than on solid ground, I put my foot on the edge of the pond. And from that moment on, gravity took over. First one leg, then the rest of me, and then the lawnmower slowly toppled, resulting in one very wet and stinky tom, some very shocked goldfish, and a lawnmower that was twisted and flooded. Now, the condemned state we're in is a bit like me falling. Without any external intervention, the outcome is certain. I needed to be rescued, but wasn't. And the world without God's initiative would, find, would be impossible to find rescue. But the great news of Jesus is that rescue mission is exactly what happened. Unlike my pond experience, there was a rescue plan in place. God has sent Jesus to put that rescue plan into real place. But that salvation plan requires our belief. So we come to our second heading. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Now, I know that this can cause lots of questions about what belief actually is. We heard last week that we're saved by looking at Jesus, by being born again. This is adding belief to it. Is it like the Queen of Hearts, maybe in Alice in Wonderland, who could reportedly believe six impossible things before breakfast? Or maybe belief in a psychological concept or a mathematical proof. Or maybe belief in extraterrestrial life or fairies at the bottom of the garden. 
Those questions of belief are, I think, reasonable questions. After all, the prize is eternal life. If it requires in our belief, we should be really sure what we're talking about. Again, if you were with us last week, Ben reminded us that salvation requires nothing more than our need to look at Jesus, a simple and clear act of belief in order to be born again. We absolutely need to rely on Jesus and Jesus alone for our salvation. But it might help if I use an illustration for what true belief looks like. So, can I take you to the Niagara Falls on the Canada-US border? Somewhere that must be on the top 10 of amazing things to see. And now, can I transport you back in time to 1859, and there is a tightrope across the falls, buffeted with heavy winds, shrouded in thick mist, and surrounded by the thundering sounds of 3,160 tons of water falling every second. And at the end of the rope is one Charles Blondin. Now, our risk assessment would not allow me to have an actual tightrope. So those who have been asking, this is what the sticky tape along the middle of the road is. And instead of importing Charles Blondin at uh, vast expense, we've got Freddie. And Freddie is going to be our intrepid adventurer. With all the pizzazz, Tom's going to help in a minute. Just getting ready, it's not random. With all the pizzazz and glitz of a modern-day influencer, Blondon went on to create awareness about the act before the actual performance. On the day of the stunts, Blondon wanted to really grip the, grip the crowd. Who believes I can, he can cross? Who believes he can do the line? Yes. People can believe. That's great. Building up the tension and excitement as the crowd cheered for their hero. The crowd were on his side. They were calling, we believe. Go for it, Blondon. With all the skill of a master showman, <laughs> he responded, well, if you really believe, get on my back. I'll carry you across. It went quiet. For that very first crossing, no one believed quite that much. In fact, London made this stunt look easy. He showed what was possible. Indeed, during that first walk, he actually lay down and stood on one leg on the cable. Now, Freddie, I'm going to give him a hat, obviously, and the pole to show how he could do the walk. So let's give Freddie some encouragement. Can he do it? Is he doing it? So, oh, he's coming back again. I think we've had a natural show-off. Now, I didn't say that the very first experience Blondon was wearing pink tights and a yellow tunic. That's why I thought Freddie might balk at that, and probably quite rightly. Uh, so that's why we've gone for the, uh, the activity. But you've all believed he's done it, he's demonstrated. Now the question is to his manager, because there always had to be a next time for Blondon. There always had to be a next time to do something a bit more extreme. And for the next time, instead of asking the crowd for a volunteer, he asked his manager, manager, will you come on my back? 
I'm not sure whether it may have, actually his manager may have just said it in exactly that, that pitch. We're going to see if this works. Uh, so you do need the thing, so uh, see if you can, and see if... <laughs> Tom and Freddie are both dead. Thank you very much. Uh, I, think, I think the risk assessment of not having a 150 meter uh, high thing was well justified. But can you see the difference in the type of belief? The first time is the belief of a crowd. Does it matter to them if uh, London could cross or not? No, it didn't. It kind of, it's, it was, you know, it was maybe nice, it was good to see, it was an exciting thing to do, but there were no consequences for the crowd, whether it was belief or not. But compare that with the belief of Tom or London's manager. Believing that London could do it wasn't an abstract movement, abstract notion. No, it was literally a matter of life and death. It was complete and utter trust of actually becoming one body with London and trusting in him absolutely. And that, I think, is the sort of belief that we're talking about in John 13, 16. It's not a superficial or head belief or like something believing at the bottom of the garden. It's putting our absolute trust in Jesus because we know he is the person who can take us across. I hope that you find that illustration helpful. And hopefully, you can see that God's offer of salvation, the reason why he sent his son, does demand a reaction from us. It doesn't cost us anything. And we can do absolutely nothing to deserve his mercy. But we do need to react. If we don't, then we remain in our natural state. That natural state is loving the darkness. So where do you want to live? In darkness or in light? As our Bible passage is clear... For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it might clearly seen that his works have been carried out by God, in God. From the seeming heights of this gospel summary in verses 16 to 21, which I think repeat and keep going back to as a justification we now come in the rest of the passage to what seems like a slightly confusing and classic power struggle, maybe between the disciples of John the Baptist in one hand and the disciples of Jesus. Which brings me to my third point. And this is, it's not about us, it's all about Jesus. So look with me in verse 28, where John the Baptist said, I am not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. This remarkable testimony by John the Baptist arises from confusion around the Baptist disciples about what they're doing and what John's baptism is all about, whether it's sufficient for the purification. That's Old Testament language for being pure or right with God. Now that is really consistent with John's mission and purpose of calling people to repent from their sins and turn around from leading unholy lives. 
it's a really successful ministry area. It's attracting huge crowds. And we'll see later in the Jesus story having an impact on the whole nation, including kings and queens. John's disciples were every bit as committed to this work as Jesus was. It meant leaving homes, jobs, and families. And it was really helpful in pointing people towards Jesus. But as John said, that mission, that work wasn't sufficient. His role and ministry was only important because it leads to Jesus. With great humility, it's clear now that Jesus is the bridegroom. The Baptist is the best man. His role needs to reduce importance. Jesus must increase, but I must decrease. So I wonder if I can take you back to this picture of the best man and me at my wedding quite a while ago. His name's Matt. It was obviously taken some time ago, but in the 1990s, this was the height of fashion. <laughs> now, Matt was a brilliant best man. He was attentive, supportive, even put a shine on my shoes that has not been equaled since. But how ridiculous would it have been if at the crucial point in the ceremony, he had elbowed me aside, stood beside Dorothy and said, I will, when my sister, who was performing our wedding, asked if I would take this woman, Dorothy, to be my wife. It's the same level of ridiculous here if John and his disciples elbow Jesus and his saving work aside so that they can go on with their message of repentance. Now, I think that's a really helpful message here for all of us at church. We need to be mindful of this in all of our ministry areas. It's not about us. All of our work needs to point towards Jesus. We need to be clear in our service to use the gifts we've been given and to make the most of the opportunities that God presents, like Fiona has uh, spoken so clearly about. That may mean we have to review what we do in our service from time to time. That can present difficult choices. For myself, some of you will know I found the decision to stop being an encounter leader a couple of years ago hard. And similarly, when I stepped down as a Cub Scout leader over at a partner church in Jesmond, just last awesome, difficult, left me in tears. And I've been challenged in preparing this talk with what I've faced it with. Being a church warden here and a trustee of St. Joseph's New Church and helping the Anglican Mission in England with their meeting procedures and disciplinary policies and doing the accounts of a Christian charity. Now, these aspects of service are valuable, but they need so much more work to show how a good risk assessment or a balanced spreadsheet can point to Jesus. So can I ask you to keep praying for the church staff and trustees in particular at this time that in the busyness of setting up new arrangements and challenges, we make sure that everything we do points to Jesus. And why do we need to do that? It's because Jesus is above all. And that's my last point this evening. Trust Jesus because he's from God. So in verses 31 to 36, we see he who comes from all is above all. Sorry, he who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. John gets why his ministry must decrease, because someone greater has come. Earlier in this book, in uh, chapter 1, verse 34, the Baptist has proclaimed that Jesus is God's chosen one. Jesus is worth John's sacrifice. He recognizes that Jesus is no mere man, but from above and chosen by God for a specific job. His preaching, 
unlike mine or anyone else's, is straight from God the Father, translated so that people can really understand it. Jesus utters the word of God, and the Father has given everything into his hand. Being clear in that, and John the Baptist's role in pointing towards Jesus, John recognizes that a person's reaction to Jesus is the most important thing. It leads to the eternal life that we opened with. And John the Baptist leads us with this great challenge. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. At first reading that may sound like John is trying to scare us into salvation, into believing. But it's really not scaremongering at all. But it is a loving warning. And God loves us because, and warns us because he loves us and doesn't want to condemn us which is why in John 13, verse 16, he says, for God so loved the world that he sent his only son. Three points, I think, of application. So if the encounter group been using their spreadsheet, this is maybe just the thing to give yourself an aid memoir. For everyone else, maybe helpful as well. But I hope the applications of this passage are clear. Firstly, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. If you don't already believe in Jesus, it's a first order question. It has eternal consequences. Do take it seriously. Otherwise, we're heading for life without Jesus and God. Secondly, if we've made that decision to believe, first of all, thank God that it was all his work, not anything to do with us. And then we live our lives in accordance as in the light of Jesus. And thirdly, and finally, we need to work hard to make sure that all of our service points towards Jesus. Ultimately, it's him and his mission is all that matters. Let's close in prayer together. Dear God, we thank you that you are an amazing God. Thank you for your great love for us. Help us to believe and show us how to live our lives in the light of your amazing love. Amen.